In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Over the course of 18 years in ordained ministry, it's remarkable how many times in the midst of adult education classes, I've heard people say that they much prefer the New Testament to the Old Testament because the Old Testament God is a God of punishment and vengeance, they say, where the New Testament God is a God of forgiveness and love. Or the Old Testament is all about law and the New Testament is about grace. There's some truth to these things, but having married a man whom I met while he was working on a PhD in Old Testament studies, it's been impressed upon me regularly that I have a special responsibility as a priest to help redeem the Old Testament among those who interpret it this way. (laughs) Happily, today's story of Ahab and his neighbor Naboth, the Jezreelite from the book of 1 Kings, gives me a good opportunity to work on it. At first, it seems like a pretty tragic story all around. First, we meet Naboth, who is owner of a vineyard in the Jezreel Valley adjacent to the palace, one of the most fertile places in all of Israel. King Ahab, then ruler of Israel's northern kingdom, wants Naboth's vineyard for a garden, and he offers Naboth what may seem like a pretty fair deal. I will give you better land in another location or money. For in exchange for your vineyard. Which do you prefer? But Ahab fails to understand something very important, that for Naboth, the value of the land in question isn't financial, it's ancestral, even religious. The land connects Naboth to his family's identity and to the story of his community. The land isn't just a plot. It's not any old plot, not some just some dirt and some vines. It's not something with which Naboth can part. This land is a part of who he is. According to the laws of Israel, land wasn't something to just be bought and sold like we buy and sell land today. In the imagination of the people of Israel, land didn't really belong to anyone but God anyway. Having claim on a parcel in the promised land was part of claiming one's identity among the people of God. Land was passed down among families and was not to be traded in such a way that it was accumulated in the hands of any one family or any small group of families. That, And the point of this was that all would have enough and none would have so much that others would struggle to survive. That is reflected everywhere in the legal codes of the Old Testament. So while the king's offer may seem fair to our modern eyes, it is in fact a terribly insulting offer, probably illegal, and at the very least, an abuse of power. Because who says no to a king, really? But in a rather bold act of faith, Naboth does say no which you can imagine did not go over terribly well with King Ahab. And this leads us to one of the most redeeming qualities of the Old Testament, in my opinion. It's often quite funny, really funny. Just look at the way that Ahab responds to Naboth. His poor little itty-bitty feelings have been hurt, 
clearly. He goes back to the palace, he lays down on his bed, he faces away from the people and refuses to eat. My four-year-old acts this way sometimes, but he's four and not the sovereign ruler of an actual nation. Thank goodness. (laughs) Ahab's infantile weakness gives his scheming wife, Jezebel, opportunity to carry out his greedy desires. I will give you the vineyard, she says. But to do so, she conspires to put a hit out on Naboth's life. Two scoundrels will publicly accuse him of cursing the God and the king, crimes which are punishable by death. They do, and Naboth becomes the victim of a public stoning. No one asks about Naboth's innocent or guilt regarding the accusation. He never gets his day in court. No one stands up and intercedes on his behalf. So Ahab takes possession of the land without, without ever asking how it is that Naboth happened to be killed at such a convenient moment for the king. In most cases, this would be the end of the story. A king ruthlessly dispenses with his opposition in a way that keeps his own hands clean, and the opposition is effectively silenced, never to be heard from again. Except that that isn't the end of this story. Instead, Elijah, God's prophet, calls Ahab and Jezebel to account for their treachery. He delivers the message of God's judgment against them, telling them that in the very same place where the nice colorful image, the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will also lick up your blood. Because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, I will bring disaster upon you. Ah, you may say, see, there's that God of judgment. Yes, definitely. Ahab and Jezebel will pay a steep price for their very ruthless disregard of human life and of God's desires for us. But we have to remember that one man or woman's judgment is often another man or woman's justice. For some people in this world, the story of Naboth's vineyard is truly a story of hope. A professor of biblical theology in England named Chris Wright tells the story of preaching at a gathering where a man approached him after he'd spoken. And this man said, I was so thrilled when you said you were going to be speaking from the Old Testament because I became a Christian through reading the Old Testament. And the man recounted to this professor how he'd grown up among one of the most oppressed people groups in India and was part of a community that was systematically exploited and treated with contempt and often with unchecked violence. He said that as a teen, this experience had planted in him this burning desire to fight against this system. So he'd excelled in school and won scholarships to the university where he immersed himself himself in the ideals of revolution and of Marxism. His goal was to achieve power enough in some profession or another that he could do something to exact justice and revenge against those who perpetuated injustice against his people. This young man just happened to be welcomed to campus, though, by a Christian group that gave him a Bible. 
as they gave every first-year student, a Bible which he decided to read just out of casual interest, though he had no respect for Christians, he said, at all at that point in his life. And it just so happens that the first story he opened to and read was the story of Naboth and Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 21. The man said he was astonished to find in the Bible a story about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the poor, things he had seen every day of his life. But even more amazing to him was the fact that God took the side of Naboth in the story and not only accused Ahab and Jezebel of wrongdoing, but took action against them. The man had continued reading and found that throughout the Old Testament history, God constantly takes the side of the oppressed and took direct action against their enemies. I never knew such a God existed, he said. It was amazing. Just the kind of God he wanted. But then this young man hit a wall in Isaiah chapter 43. The end of Isaiah chapter 42 describes Israel's sins against the poor and God's just punishment. But suddenly, he said, unexpectedly, God is talking about forgiveness and pardon and love. He had been drawn by his anger to worship this God of justice and revenge, but he couldn't take all this stuff about forgiveness and love. Strange how this is exactly the opposite of what I've heard from so many people in the American churches over the years. We like the forgiving God, the accepting us as we are God, and we distance ourselves from the God who judges and corrects. The more this young man read on through the Old Testament, mind you, the more he found this very image of God, a God who is angry at injustice, inclined to exact punishment, but even more determined to turn his people back from their unjust ways, to return them to the promise that God would be their God and that they would be his people, that they would reflect in their dealings with one another his values, his goodness, his love, his concern, and justice for the poor. Later, the Christians who brought this young man his first Bible returned and helped him make the connection between the judgment and grace that he saw in the Old Testament and the Christ that he met in the New Testament. They helped him see that as much as God wanted his people back and and to choose of their own accord to live righteously, they just couldn't do it. We just can't do it. He said that he then began to see that what the world needed most wasn't a God who would sweep in to punish those who sinned against one another, but because we all do that in one way or another, but a God whose willingness to suffer alongside and on behalf of his people, who would rob sin of its destructive power by taking it on himself, God suffering with us, who would transform his followers into a people more and more like him, making us willing and able to suffer alongside and on behalf of the world's suffering people. That's what the world needed, and that's 
what the world can find in Christianity. This man's story helps make the case, I hope, that it's far too simplistic to say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament a God of grace. Both Old Testament and New Testament reflect the same God. There is judgment and grace in both Testaments. For at least five chapters before Ahab and Jezebel murder Naboth and steal his vineyard, Elijah, the prophet, has shown up multiple times at Ahab's doorstep to let him know that God is not pleased with his leadership of the kingdom. He's acted unjustly toward his subjects, and he's disregarded God. Multiple warnings have been given. There have been many opportunities for Ahab and for Jezebel to turn things around, but they persist in doing evil, so finally the hammer comes down. (laughs) In the gospel lesson this morning, the emphasis of the story is on forgiveness and grace. A woman from whom the Pharisees have declared a notorious sinner knows her need of God, and she breaks every social convention there is to get to Jesus and to show him her gratitude for the love and acceptance that he offers. He welcomes her, he blesses her and forgives her, and he releases her from the power of condemnation. He restores her to community and is then roundly criticized for doing it by the supposedly righteous religious folk with whom he's meeting. And yet notice in this story of acceptance and grace how it's interwoven with what? A story of judgment and correction. Jesus uses this woman's example to correct the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. He lets it be known that if they want to be righteous as they say they do, then they should be focused on dealing with their own sins and not condemning the sins of others. If God is not angered by what was done to Naboth by a powerful king and his wife, by what was done to this unnamed woman we learned about this week, raped behind a dumpster by a Stanford swimmer, what kind of God would that be? If God is not angered by the disparity between how a black high school football star was sentenced and how the white Stanford swimmer was sentenced to the same crime, Six years for the black 16-year-old? Six months for the white 20-year-old? What kind of God would that be? And what would it say about God if justice was all God cared about? If there was no mercy, no grace, no forgiveness, no reconciliation, no opportunity to learn and to grow to change, to turn things around. The prophet Amos gave us a wonderful image. He said, with the voice of God, I have set a plumb line in the midst of my people. That plumb line is there to guide. On one side is judgment, and on the other is grace. Judgment for those who are in the midst of sin, grace for those who are outcast, mistreated, or who have failed. And together, they guide us, if we let them, into a way of life for all of us. Amen.